0: special nights for our church. It's an opportunity to look at different cultural aspects um, that maybe we wouldn't necessarily consider thinking about as part of the biblical story. And it gives us the chance to look at them through that lens. So tonight, it's violence in the Bible. Um, Next month, we will be talking about politics, right? Just in time for November. Um, We will have two speakers coming that I am incredibly excited about. We'll have Stephanie Summers, who is the CEO of the Center for Public Justice, and we will also have Sho Baraka, who is, uh, yeah, I'm super excited, <laughs> who is a rapper, an activist. Um, he is the founder of the AND Campaign. If you've heard about that, it's a political um, activist movement in Atlanta. Um, so they will be joining us next month, so make sure you're here for that one. Um, And then to kick us off, I will start you guys with a little bit of a question. Um, In your tables or with people around you, just start thinking about America and if you think America would be considered a violent nation or not in comparison to the rest of the world. And then Jim will come up to introduce Josh. Thanks.
1: One of the things I wanted to highlight about tonight is the reason why we chose this topic, uh, violence in the Bible, is because we as a church are are going through something that we're calling the True Story Project. We believe that the Bible is the true story of the whole world, and therefore what we want to do is we want to immerse our community, the whole church, to read through the whole Bible throughout the course of the whole year. So if you have not participated in that, you should know that we've got a uh, a Bible reading plan and this little thing called a squid book to help you engage Scripture. If you need one of these, come find me afterwards. I'll be uh, in the lobby back there. Um, But one of the things we wanted to emphasize with the True Story Project is if you're getting behind, that's okay. Our little motto is start today. Start today. We want people immersing themselves into the Word. So uh, continue to dive into that, and, and, and connecting that to the first Wednesday tonight, we know that people are going to be reading parts of the Old Testament uh, very soon for the first time that have levels of, of violence, and there's things that are going on. And so I know that many of us would have questions about that and how to make sense of that. So we decided to in- invite Josh Butler here to uh, speak and the reason is, is for a couple reasons. One is that he has written a fantastic book, one of my favorite books called Skeletons in God's Closet. And so he's going to talk about some of that stuff tonight, about holy war and what you see in the, in the Bible. Um, the other reason is because this is a guy that we at Redemption, the pastors at Redemption, have been profoundly influenced by, and we like him a lot. He's a pastor up in uh, Portland, Oregon, at a church called uh, Imago Day. Uh, he's an author of two books, The Skeletons in God's Closet and uh, The Pursuing God. And he's probably tired of me saying this, but he, uh, one of the reasons why I like him so much is because I think he's like the perfect combination between Dr. J. Julius Irving, he's right over there, you can see him, Malcolm Gladwell, and C.S. Lewis, if that person was raised in Portland. So... <laughs> That's what you should expect tonight. So would you go ahead and welcome him as he comes up and leads us.
2: Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, So good to be back with you. I remember being here about a year and a half ago and just love seeing what God is doing in and through redemption here. So excited to be with you. Yes, I have found that many of us fear that holy war is like the skeleton in God's closet. Right, this tough topic where if we were to really kind of open up the closet doors, open up scripture and look, I think the fear is that we'd find that God is not truly good and worthy of our trust. But I found this because I think we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. So one of the things I want to try and do tonight is offer a few paradigm shifts that have really helped me over the years to see how these topics are arising because of the goodness of God rather than in spite of it or in contradiction to it. And at the end, of the end of the day, the biggest hope is not necessarily that we just have all the right answers or any, anything like that, but it's more that relationally we would have a further, deeper trust that God is good through and through, all the way down, in his very bones. So the way we're going to kind of do this, the, the night will be broken up into two parts. It's going to take about 25 minutes and, and kind of hit... Three big paradigms just on kind of what's the overarching story that's going on with Israel and Canaan, uh, kind of the holy war story in the Old Testament. And then the second half, or we're going to do a second section. We'll have some discussion, and then we'll look at uh, what is, uh, look at what I like to call the drastic marching orders, some of the tough commands like show no mercy, destroy them all, and, and try and get a better sense of what's going on with some, you know, some of those commands that can sound pretty harsh. All right, well, to start off, Uh, You know, I think when... um, You know, this topic has actually been... A personal one for me. I, I had a chance years ago to work on the Navajo Reservation for about six months and uh, very shaped by uh, the people there and the experience there. And as I was there though working at, I got to know more of kind of U.S. history with native peoples and particularly the history with Manifest Destiny. And one of the things that happened with Manifest Destiny is uh, it was an ideology in the 1800s that was used often to justify westward expansion. And it liked to think at times or use language of the United States or, or North America as like a new promised land, and America is like a new Israel, which sort of put uh, Native American peoples in the unfortunate uh, position of being like the Canaanites, right? And it could be used to justify the broken treaties, the forced migrations, the massacres. And so uh, when I want think of like U.S. Senator Daniel Inouye heard him talk and, and talked about how of the over 800 treaties that we've made with Native peoples, we've broken every one. And at times, I think this backdrop of uh, manifest destiny and this particular reading of the Old Testament could be used to justify that. So as a newer believer in college and out there and kind of reading through the Old Testament going, man, God, how do I make sense of this? Because if I'm honest, I feel like I'd rather side with the Navajo. All right. And so, as we look at the Old Testament, though, I would suggest today that, uh, man, as I was reading through going, there's something radically different that seems to be going on here. And I don't know that I could have put my finger on it back then, but I want to suggest tonight that the, the story that's going on in the Old Testament is actually a great source of hope for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden of the world. We'll look tonight at why. Well, When most of us think of holy warriors today, I think the picture that we get in our minds, if you're someone like me, is something like this. I gotta turn this on, huh? Mm. Something like this, right? Dude, I grew up on Rambo, I love Rambo, you know. But uh, the image when we think of Rambo and Holy Wars, I think as we think of like the muscle bound machine gun heroes, right? These folks who are strong, they've got muscle and they're they're ready to take on the fight. They've been training. Uh, They've got machine guns. They've got kind of the right weaponry and all. And they like to think of themselves as heroes. They're justified in conquering because of how great they and their civilization is. I want to suggest tonight, though, that the Old Testament takes each of these categories and flips them upside down on their head. That Israel is actually the complete inversion of all three of these categories. To start off, when we think of holy war, I think we tend to think of the strong using the gods or God to justify their conquest of the weak. We tend to think of the strong using God to justify their conquest of the weak, We see in the Old Testament is actually the opposite. We see God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. We have to, first question we have to ask is who is it that's involved in this this battle? And we see that Israel is not the strong. They are the exact opposite. They are depicted as the weak, the last, the least. They are a nation of slaves who have been getting their tails kicked on the outskirts of Egypt's empire for four centuries. And so God chooses the weakest and last and least of the ancient world, and he pulls them and draws them out, and God is taking on the mighty empires of the ancient world through them. As we see, this is not the strong going up against the weak. It is God arising on behalf of the weak against the strong of the ancient world. So let's take a look at each of these three categories and see how Israel inverts them. We'll start with machine guns. Does Israel have machine guns? No, she does not, right? Israel comes out of Egypt And, uh, man, again, she's this nation of ragtag slaves, and it's not like there was a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them out in the wilderness, right? Like, Israel is going up against the mightiest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world, and they are armed to the teeth. They've got the best weaponry of the day, and Israel has whatever she's been able to gather, kind of the sticks and stones she's been able to pull together in the desert. Israel, I would suggest, is like a kindergartner, taking on the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. She's outrageously outgunned. We see as well, if we think about defenses, Canaan has strong, fortified military outposts capable of deflecting anything, fortresses like Jericho, right? And Israel's defense system is a small wooden box that she built in the desert, the Ark of the Covenant, signifying that her protection, her only defense is that God's presence goes with her. When we think of generals, uh, Canaan has generals who have practiced warfare on the surrounding nations. Uh, Canaan itself has become an assimilator of nations that has conquered and assimilated uh, others into its territory. Israel's generals are, you know, are are folks who've been practicing, you know, warding off snakes in the wilderness. When we think of armor, Canaan has high-tech metal armor, the best of the ancient world. Israel, we're told, has the same ratty clothes she's been wearing in the desert for the last 40 years. We think about the warriors themselves. Canaan is a land of giants who have been feasting on the, milk, the land of milk and honey for generations. In contrast, uh, Israel is depicted as like a nation of runts. She marches in to Canaan like ants under elephants' feet. Canaan has all the wealth and affluence and the psychological confidence that that can bring. They, and Israel's food, uh, you know, they, it's almost, I think like the equivalent of like prison food, bread and water, right? They've been in survival mode out in the wilderness for a generation. <clears throat> all right, so when we see this, uh, I would suggest to you that Israel's weaponry looks less like this and more like this, right? <laughs> Like, Israel is uh, outnumbered, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, and our only hope is that God goes with her. Uh, there's this famous verse in the Psalms uh, that Israel sings, it's a, it's a holy verse which says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Israel learned to sing this during her encounter with Canaan, and it was this picture of in Egypt, like they trust in horses, chariots, which were like the tanks of the ancient world. They've got the mightiest kind of powerful weaponry, and our hope, our trust, is not in our military kind of you know weaponry and firepower. Our hope is in the name of the Lord our God who fights on our behalf. <clears throat> so something. Here is happening that's antithetical to mainstream holy war. Israel is the dramatic, laughable underdog. If you are thinking of football, this is less like uh, one higher-ranked team going up against a slightly lesser-ranked team. This is like your, you know, the NFL Super Bowl champions going up against your local high school pee-wee football team. Right? They're in a different league altogether. Okay. So we've looked at kind of the machine guns. Uh, Now let's move to muscle bound. Like, is Israel muscle bound? And what I mean by this muscle bound is kind of strength and training and strategy and the skill sets and all in preparation for the fight. And what we see again with Israel is the exact opposite. Her strategies are ridiculous, right? So let's take Jericho, for example. So this is the first battle as Israel comes up to the land of Canaan and, and I'm sure with Joshua and, and everyone, they're kind of going, all right, let's wait on God and let's find out, God, what's the battle plan going to be? And so they wait for it and they wait for it. And God's like, all right, here it is. I want you guys to march around the walls for seven days and blow trumpets. You know? <laughs> that is a ridiculous battle strategy. Right? If you can imagine, uh, man, like during World War II, if you can imagine uh, the Allied soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy with rock music weapons, right? Like guitars. (laughs) It would just be like, what are you doing? That is a ridiculous battle strategy. Or, uh, you know, the Mongols coming up to the Great Wall of China and blowing trumpets or something. Like it would be seen as laughable. If we had kind of Mexico and Canada like marching along the US border with a marching band, like we would laugh, right? That's not. Uh, It's not a good battle strategy. But I think there was a point to it, right? It was going, Israel was marching in in a posture of worship, and not with kind of the violent weaponry and all the stuff that the ancient world had, but trusting God to be the one, the God she worshiped to fight on her behalf. And we see that this isn't just uh, you know a, a one-off experience. This actually becomes the prototype. Like almost all of the battle strategies look ridiculous. And so, if we go a little further, we see with Gideon and Judges, and here in the days of Gideon, uh, things have become. Uh, hard for Israel again like the the powers of Canaan have have arisen and are oppressing her and she is again kind of like she was in Egypt kind of under the thumb of these mighty powerhouses and so God goes and he raises up Gideon and we're told that Gideon is from the least family of the weakest tribe and the last in Israel so once again when things are hard God goes to the last the least and the weakest and he draws out and calls out Gideon to lead the people and as Gideon comes we're told that uh Man, Midian's militias have gathered against Israel, and they are so many that they, it says they, they could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Like So Israel's going up against these sand on the seashore armies, and Gideon is able to rally uh, 32,000 troops. And so, okay, we've got our 32,000 troops, God, and we're ready to trust you and go up against these sand on the seashore armies. And so, God, what's the battle strategy? And they wait for it, and they wait for it, and they wait for it, and God says you have too many men. I want you to send 99% of them home. It's a story where they drink from the river and the ones who kind of lap the water like dogs, you know, a ton of folks get sent away. God sends 99% of the troops home. He's like, I'm going to take on the sand on the seashore militias with the remaining 1%. That is a bad battle strategy, (laughs) right? That is a ridiculous battle story. If you can imagine Lincoln during the Civil War sending 99% of the Union soldiers home, just go. let's just take them on with the remaining 1% just to prove a point, right? Or William Wallace, kind of heart, you know, he's on the battlefield and he tells all the Scottish battalions, just, just go home, take, take the day off. I'm going to take these guys on by myself. That's kind of the picture. And it's ridiculous, but I'd say it's designed to be. It's designed to prove a point that God is the one primarily doing the fighting, but it's not in Israel's strength. And indeed, God tells Gideon, you know, we're doing this lest Israel might boast that my own strength has saved me. And it's not anywhere close to Israel's strength. Her hope is in God who fights for her. So I'd suggest to you that uh, Israel is not bus- muscle-bound. If we're wanting to think of uh, what Israel looks like in the scenario, she looks less like this and more like this. Right. <laughs> like Israel is a nation of weaklings in the ancient world going up against the mighty muscle-bound powerhouses and as we look at this you know I I love there's this verse that we hear a lot be still and know that I am God right I I love this verse it's a good verse but often when we see it it's kind of like in the hallmark card. you got you know be still and know that I am God and there's sort of the lush forest and the lake in the background and there's a little bench where you know it's like you would go and sit and Reflect quietly. And the message or theme seems to be kind of, you know, life gets chaotic and messy. And so break away, get out in nature and calm yourself before God. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's, you know, that, that can be a good thing. But in its original context, it might surprise you to know that this was actually a holy war verse. Be still and know that I am God was a holy war verse. It comes from the scene where God is delivering Israel out from Egypt, and so she's coming out from under the empire, and she's on her way out, and she gets to the Red Sea and finds that Pharaoh's armies and the chariots and horses are coming down upon her at her heels, and so she's kind of facing on the one side kind of the chaotic forces of the water and nature and creation, and on the other side, the chaotic political forces of Pharaoh's army, and she's about to get crushed and sandwiched in the middle, going, God, what's the battle strategy? What is our hope? And Moses says to the people, he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Hebrew scholars would say this gets picked up and carried into the Old Testament as the famous phrase, be still and know that I am God. The picture we should have in mind here then is is less of kind of the monk in the monastery kind of secluded from society. Not not that that's necessarily all bad, but when we hear be still and know that I'm God, the image we should have in mind is more like a kid with disabilities on the playground getting beat up by 10 bullies who are older and stronger than him. And suddenly his dad steps on the field and says, Step back, son, and watch me take care of these guys for you. Like, be still and know that I am God. So we see once again that Israel is not muscle bound, and I think this kind of confronts um, the uh, the picture of uh, you know terrorists, right? Like where because you could say, okay, well we know that uh, you know Israel isn't strong um, like maybe the mighty empires of our day, but couldn't terrorists kind of say, well we're the weak fighting on behalf of God, right? Like, but this gets it backwards too because Israel's motto is not we will fight for God. Her motto is, God will fight for us. And if he doesn't, we don't stand a chance. Like, Israel is not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. This is not kind of a network of cowards taking pot shots at civilians from the shadows of caves with billions of dollars in international oil money. This is a weak, marginalized group of people standing defenseless on the open battlefield about to get crushed unless God arises to fight on their behalf. Like Ben Allenberger is an Old Testament scholar, and he puts it this way, observing this uh, kind of theme in, in the Old Testament. He says, "You know, every other nation in antiquity claimed that their gods participated in war and were responsible for giving their warriors victory, but only Israel came to understand this claim to mean that it was unnecessary to fight." It's kind of powerful, going, man. Israel's hope, and when she participates, just kind of finishing off a battle that God had already won. Like her hope was. Not that she would fight for God, but that God would fight for her. And that gave her the confidence to stand vulnerably in the midst of the nations of the ancient world. All right. Well, we've looked at uh, muscle-bound and machine guns. We've seen that Israel kind of inverts each of those. And then for the third one, uh, let's take a look at heroes, right? Is our Israel heroes, right? And once again, I think uh, we see that they're not. And so what I mean by heroes is that historically, nations have used the greatness of their civilization to justify their conquest. Right? We call this kind of the realm of ideology. So think of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire justified conquering the surrounding nations because of how great their civilization was going to be. They called it the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Basically, we're justified conquering you because of the peace our civilization will bring in its wake. If we go into kind of Western colonialism in the modern era, there was what uh, some called the white man's burden. There could be kind of this sense of almost we have this duty and this obligation to go and and conquer and establish ourselves around the world because of the the peace of our civilization that we'll bring in its wake. I think today, I think, it might not be so much political as economic at times, where there's a sense of, dude, we're justified in economically expanding wherever we can go because we'll bring you Coca-Cola and computers and compact cars, right? There's a sense of the greatness of our civilization justifies our expansion. And whatever we might think of that, Israel moves in the opposite direction. She is constantly being reminded that it is not because of her greatness. We see in Deuteronomy uh, a central holy war passage here where God says uh, here in Deuteronomy 9, he says, know this, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, for you are a stiff-necked people, right? Not very flattering, you're stiff-necked, right? There's a sense of going, no for sure, it's not because of how great you are, Which is kind of shocking because, you know, there's the classic phrase, victors write the history books. And what that means is like, man, if you win the battle, you get to tell the story of how it went down. And those who win, those who have victory, like to look back and say, man, look how great we are. Look how noble and heroic and brave and courageous and all those things. But Israel works in the opposite direction. The Old Testament is constantly talking about how weak and fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, dishonest, and disobedient she's been. It's almost like Israel hired a reporter to kind of follow her through the wilderness and track down all of her biggest mistakes and weaknesses and shortcomings and blast them all over the pages of her history books. The Old Testament reads almost as an anti-ideology of Israel glorying in the fact that things worked out in spite of how screwed up she was. This is something counter to mainstream holy war. Not just like God's kind of writing a few lines in a few different directions. It's like he's taking the mainstream picture of holy war written across the ancient world, and he's flipping it upside down on its head. We see that Israel, uh, it was not only her uh, ideology, of, like her greatness, she also is depicted as not being a hero in terms of her numbers. We are told in Deuteronomy 7, another holy war passage, Moses says, hey, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. When we hear that, we might go, oh, fewest, that what, might not be a big deal or sound like it, but the reality, in the ancient world, numbers were king. Like, if you had loads of folks, that was a of your strength and your greatness and the, the greatness of your civilization, and God's actually going, man, you guys are not only, like, uh, a little bit behind, you're dead last, and why was that? Well, I think part of it, God calls Abraham uh, a few generations after the nations have already been growing and expanding. And a lot of them have expanded through conquest and all. And so it's almost like the nations have been on this population racetrack, and they've already run a few laps when Abraham steps on. They're ahead of the game, and they have grown significantly. So Israel is depicted as the, the, weakest, uh, the weakest and the fewest in the last. So what is going on here? I would suggest that if we kind of zoom out to the 50,000-foot level and just kind of go, what's happening in Israel's story here? I would say, I would put it like this. I would say that God is choosing the smallest, weakest, most helpless, vulnerable, powerless people to reveal to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest, powerhouse empires this is the kind of God he is. He is God who identifies with the weak, the last, and the, the least, with the oppressed, the marginalized, and that though he is patient as kind of the structures and powerhouses of our world, build our dominance and build our, our structures and the histories of injustice that are so often entailed, that though God is patient, he will not be patient forever. That ultimately God will arise, and that God tears down the unjust structures of our world, and he hands it over and lifts up, this nation of homeless, wandering slaves as a signpost of his inbreaking kingdom in the ancient world. Well, one final thought kind of wrap up this section would be, uh, I think we see all of this epitomized in the classic story of David and Goliath. And if you think of David and Goliath, uh, we often can think of this as like a, sort of like a cute children's story, right? Uh, but I think there's actually something much more going on that this is not just a holy war story, it is actually the holy war story. Here's what I mean by that. David and Goliath, this battle, this showdown, takes place at the end of the conquest. So it starts back with Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, is going on for generations through the Old Testament, and as we come to the story of David and Goliath, we're told that they're at the Valley of Elah, and this valley was kind of bordering the last little portion of land to be brought into Israel. right? And, And as we see this, we see... Uh, so this is like the end. David is finishing what Joshua began. This is the climax and the completion of the conquest. And as we see this battle take place, David and Goliath step out on the field. And, and yeah, they're these two dudes, right? But they're also, I think, archetypes. Like they bring into themselves the entire history. Goliath is this embodiment of all that Canaan has been. Loud, boastful, and strong. He's got all of the fanciest weaponry and the armor. He's got uh, just, you know, like he's just armed to the teeth and he's loud and boastful and he, he says like he's got the strategy, like I'm just gonna walk down and, you know, chop your head off, right? Like he's got the ideology of like I'm gonna do this on behalf of my gods. I'm, I, I will fight for my gods to show them how great I am, right? They are. And David works in the opposite direction. David is like this runt in comparison to Goliath's armor and all he's a shepherd boy he can't even fit he can't carry the armor or fit it on him and so he's in kind of his shepherd clothes his ragtag clothes and in place of like the mighty weaponry of the ancient world he's got this sling and stones and yeah it can fire straight but I think in the ancient world you're looking and just going that looks ridiculous right and and in place of kind of the loud boastful ideology like David's like doesn't say hey I'm gonna fight for God he says God will fight for me God will take you down today On my behalf. And even the strategy, like Goliath's strategy makes perfect sense. Like go track down your enemy and pop off their head, right? David's strategy makes no sense. Like throw pebbles at Mount Everest and hope it falls down, right? And yet at the end of the day, God arises on behalf of David, wins. And it's it's the climax and consummation of the conquest. And the story embodies in its imagery and it embodies the whole story that's gone before. Well, I know that you're always supposed to give kind of practical application when you're giving a talk about like this, you know? And so I, I don't want to leave you hanging. I want to give you some practical application with what to do to, to, with this. I want to give you the 10 steps to fight a holy war, right? So here's how to fight a holy... If you really want to fight a biblical holy war today, here's how you can do it. Step number one is throw away your armor. Step number two, burn your tactical training books. Get rid of your strategy, right? Step number three... Uh, Find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. Number four, visit a rehab center to find military leaders with issues. (laughs) Five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all your flaws and failures. Six, boast to your enemies about how backwards your civilization is. Uh, Is that going... There we go. Find the biggest baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Number eight, pick a fight. <laughs> Nine, walk into the middle of the battlefield, and 10, pray that God shows up. Okay. So <laughs> there <we> go.) <laughs> This is backwards. No one is going to fight a holy war like this these days, right? Like, uh, and so one of the concerns with Old Testament violence and all is often that, man, well, if we really believe in, in that, then it's just gonna, we're going to use that to justify a violence like that today. But I think no one in their right mind will that. So if we really kind of immerse ourselves in the story, if we kind of take a closer look at what's going on, I think it actually reveals a radically different picture. And it's one that actually speaks to a God who will ultimately stand up for the the oppressed, the downtrodden of our world, and a God who cares about not just personal injustice, he cares about systemic injustice and things of that nature in our world. And so as we kind of end this first half, we want to break into some discussion. And uh, as we talk around our tables, I guess the, the two things I'd kind of leave you with to talk about would be, first would be, uh, which are, are are there any of those paradigm shifts that kind of most, um, most stand out to you? Kind of the muscle bound, the machine gun, or the heroes? One of those that kind of was like, ah, oh, I've never seen that before. Maybe talk about that. And the second would be, if we kind of try and zoom into the modern day, we open with the question of like, America, like, are, are we more or less violent? And, and similarly, I think going, where do we as, as America, how do we kind of fit in that storyline? Like, if, if we're kind of looking at the mighty empires of the world and the weak and uh, disempowered nation, and then similarly, where does the church fit in that storyline? Not necessarily us here right now, but the global church, the global body of Christ. How might America and how might the global body of Christ kind of fit into a narrative like that? So let's take uh, about five minutes and discuss. Thanks. all right let's bring it back in uh great discussion it sounds like it's going on okay so we started uh there just trying to go hey what is the overarching storyline that's happening here in the old testament uh but now i think we could say okay that's uh That that helps that, you know, we've kind of got the storyline in in place. But still, there are uh, some what I would like to call drastic marching orders in the Old Testament, right? Some things that sound really kind of gnarly. And so, for example, we read that Israel is told to show no mercy. She's told to utterly destroy them. And it's told to not leave alive anything that breathes. And if you're like me, at first glance, you kind of read that and go, dude, that sounds like genocide, right? Like that just sounds brutal. Is that actually what's going on? Is this actually genocide? And indeed, this has been used by many uh, critics of Christianity to argue for just how brutal uh, the God of the Old Testament is. So Richard Dawkins, kind of a vocal critic of Christianity, he says, this shows that this is ethnic cleansing done with xenophobic relish, these bloodthirsty massacres. And so I want to ask kind of, is that actually what's going on? Is this a picture of, of genocide and ethnic cleansing? And I want to suggest to you uh, kind of three paradigm shifts again here that have helped me to kind of get a grip, I think, on what's going on in, in, in this part of Israel's story. Okay, first off, I'd say the first paradigm shift or observation is to recognize that these orders are carried out in the context of cities. And in the Old Testament, these are military cities. Here's what I mean by that. When you and I hear the word city, uh, I live in Portland, you're here in Phoenix, and right, like I live in a city. And so when I walk out my front door, I look around, I see a neighborhood with kids playing in the front yard. And I walk down the street and there's like a bank and a grocery store and a school. And you go a little farther and there's kind of the business district and local restaurants. And in our day and age, cities are civilian population centers. They are where the people live. But in the ancient Middle East, things were radically different. In fact, modern urbanization is a really recent phenomenon with all these folks living in the cities. And in the ancient Middle East, actually, cities were small, fortified military outposts that protected the roads and the passageways up into the villages where the people were. And so when we picture uh, cities like Jericho and and these others, uh, what we should have in mind, we should be thinking the Great Wall of China, not Beijing. Right. And so I like here is a quote by a scholar, Paul Capon. He talks about, hey, all the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian population, populations existed at Jericho. I and other cities mentioned in Joshua. Jericho was a small settlement, of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. This is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against it on the same day. Okay, so we should picture here, God is pulling down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing. Right. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, the, the, we're, we're seeing this picture of kings. The word, uh, you know, Israel takes out a lot of kings. Uh, The Melek is the Hebrew word. And when we picture that, we think of a king and it's kind of like, you know, the President Obama or the, the top leader. But in the ancient world, kings were actually primarily military leaders usually. And they often weren't like the top political authority in the region. They were often responsible to a higher king or authority or leader off-site. And that's significant because when we think, when we picture what's going on here... Israel is attacking military strongholds, knocking out generals, and putting their soldiers to flight, not invading cities, assassinating presidents, and slaughtering civilians. Israel is taking out the Pentagon, not New York City. She is taking on Napoleon and his militias, not Paris and her masses. So when we see this, uh, this language of the, these conflicts with these cities, uh, these are not civilian population Uh, centers and and massacres and all, these are military engagements with strong, fortified military strongholds. And some folks could go, yeah, okay, but there's a couple details that seem a little weird then. What what about Rahab, right? Because Rahab, you see the story of Jericho, and Rahab and her family, they're living in the city, right? And so that that looks like civilians. Well, most scholars believe that uh, Rahab was probably uh, the, the hostile runner, right? And so most of these military strongholds had a hostel in it because the military was there and so if you had people who were visiting from outside foreigners and people that you might be suspicious or scared of the best place to keep them was under the watchful eye of the military and these hostels in the ancient world were usually uh, also like a tavern where the soldiers could come for beer and all and they were often run by prostitutes because unfortunately the men often wanted more than just beer. And so it's actually, I think, indicative and interesting that Rahab is the only civilian mentioned in these conquest accounts specifically, and she's spared. No one mentioned by name. Another detail that could be a struggle for some is, as we're reading through, there's this rare phrase, but it shows up uh, just, just a few times about Israel taking out all the men, women, and children, young and old, right? And you read that and just go, well, hey, man, it says women and children, young and old, it's there. But if we jump back into kind of the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, this is actually a phrase that's known as what's called a merism, right? And a merism was where you kind of take two extreme things to talk about encompassing everything in between. So, an example of that, another Hebrew merism would be the language of heaven and earth, right? And when the Hebrews talked about, man, the God of heaven and earth, they weren't just saying like the, the sky and the dirt, right? It was a sense of this all encompassing term for everything in between. So, similarly, when Israel talks about men taking out the uh, military stronghold and all of the men and women, children, young and old inside uh, being taken out. It's talking about everything all-encompassing that's inside is either put to flight or killed. But the assumption in the ancient world, if you were an ancient Israelite, the assumption would be that there were no women or children, young and old, within those cities The way battle and warfare was conducted in the ancient Middle East is when the soldiers were were coming, uh, you know, when military engagement was coming, if you were a civilian, everyone fled to the hills. So I think one of the challenges is that often our picture of warfare today has been shaped a lot by kind of stuff in the Middle Ages. And in the Middle Ages, warfare was done differently. And so when battle was coming in the Middle Ages, everyone kind of fled into the city, right? Into the fortress for protection. And that's kind of a lot of our Western imagination, but in the ancient Middle East, the logic was, man, if battle's coming, you get out and away and flee up to the villages. And so as an ancient Israelite, you would have assumed, um, man, there's, uh, there, there's no, no civilians would likely be in there. John Goldingay is a scholar here, a uh, Hebrew scholar of the Old Testament, one of the more respected Old Testament scholars today. And he puts it this way. He says, hey, when a city is in danger of falling, back in the ancient world here, Uh, in the ancient Middle East. People do not simply wait there to be killed. They get out. Only people who do not get out, such as the city's defenders, get killed. So we have once again the depiction of a military battle and engagement. In summary, I I think as an Israelite audience would have heard these narratives and stories of what's going on, they would have heard, hey, the military strongholds were taken out, the soldiers were either uh, put to flight or killed, and nothing was left remaining and these kind of fortified strongholds that protected the ancient empires. Well, if we move on, so the first paradigm shift is is these are military cities. Second one is what I like to call ancient trash talk. (laughs) Recognizing that Israel here is using uh, ancient trash talk. Uh, Back in this day, you can read loads and loads of accounts that when people in the ancient Middle East talked about war, they liked to use very exaggerated, drastic rhetoric that everyone understood in the day to be hyperbole. And so I like to think of it as like that basketball game where you kind of, you know, you're, if you're in the locker room after the game and you hear the team that won in their back there, and like, man, we just annihilated them. We wiped the floor with them. They could not get a thing past us. Like, we just crushed them. It was a, you know, just, we, we wasted them. And if all you heard was kind of the trash talk in the locker room, it could be easy to think, man, the score must have been like 120 to zero, right? But then you step out of the locker room and you look up at the scoreboard and you're like, oh, okay, it was 120-105. Like it was a significant defeat, but not as drastic as the rhetoric alone would leave you to believe, lead you to believe. And you wouldn't say, man, why are, the basketball, why are the players lying? Right? You wouldn't say that they're lying. You would just recognize it was recognized as an understood way of speaking. And similarly, in the Old Testament, uh, they're just, in the genre of military literature, uh, kind of military warfare, war history and all, they're using the recognized literary conventions of the day to talk about the battles that have taken place. Uh, This doesn't mean that the ancient uh, writers are lying, kind of like the players in the locker room, right? But one of the first questions we have to ask when we read Scripture, uh, and we're trying to interpret it and understand it, is to kind of go, what genre is this? Right? And so, if we're reading uh, the, uh, like apocalyptic literature like Revelation, we're going to go, okay, we have to read that a little bit differently than we would, say, a letter from Paul. Right? Or Jesus' parables are going to read a little differently than Chronicles' Old Testament history. As we look particularly at the book of Joshua and some in Samuel and all, too, we have genre being used in some of these passages of military war history. And they, believe, used the established conventions of the day, similar to these flood of similar examples where you read these examples in the ancient world surrounding them and these things like, man, we completely emptied the mountains like Mount Takarimu and these, these different mountains. We just completely wiped out this people group entirely. They have been wiped off the face of the earth. They will never exist again, like it sounds like genocide. And then you find out a year later that the same people who were supposedly wiped out are back again, strong as ever, causing just as much trouble. This rhetoric is all over the ancient world. But I would suggest, even if we did not have that, uh, those examples from the ancient world, that the Old Testament itself on its own demands to be read this way. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, this uh, drastic language really only shows up in a few places, two places where there's a battle and they say, hey, we did this. And there's also before where kind of God's saying, do this, two battles where they say, we did it, and then in the end looking back and going, hey, it was done, Right. And in both of those battles, we see this dynamic happening where uh, immediately after the people who are supposedly wiped out are back again as strong as ever. So one of the most significant ones is uh, Joshua 9 to 12. So as you're reading through Joshua and you come across these chapters in 9 to 12 where it says, man, basically like all the kings and all the forces, these 30-something kings of northern Canaan rallied all of their troops and forces and all the kings and all their forces in southern Canaan, these 30-something kings rallied their forces, and their goal is to take out Israel. So it's significant that it's depicted here as a defensive battle. Like Israel's about to get crushed and annihilated by, again, they're called these sand-on-the-seashore militias that are going to come and crush her and take her out. And Israel says, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? God, we need you. And this is the famous story where God has the sun stand still and God flings down kind of the hailstones from the sky on the enemy armies. God fights on behalf of his people and wins the victory. And then Joshua and the troops run after and they, they, they complete the military battle. They complete the military victory. And at the end, almost in kind of this hive, we did it. We, we won, we, we survived. Joshua goes on and he goes, man, we did it. We wiped out, uh, you know, we, we, we wiped out all the kings of Canaan, all the forces of Canaan, we took all the land of Canaan, and he uses this language like, we showed no mercy, we utterly destroyed them, we did not leave alive anything that breathes. The problem, however, though, is if we take that literally, we're only in Joshua 12, right? And if we take it literally, Joshua's saying, it's done. Like, Canaan is ours, Israel's established, conquest is over. But all you have to do is go another chapter, another few chapters, and you see, like, Still got a long way to go, right? We're in Joshua. We've still got the rest of Joshua. We've got 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We've got all the way into Kings. We've got all the way until David's day, right? There's still generations to come before this thing actually gets completed. And so if we actually take Joshua 12, one of the the few places where this actually shows up literally, the rest of the storyline makes no sense. The other place is in Samuel and same deal with Saul and the Amalekites. We can talk about that if we want later during the Q&A. We see the same thing basically. It's a city and there's military forces and showed no mercy, utterly destroyed them. And we read later the Amalekites are still around, still strong, still causing trouble for Israel and trying to take her out. Okay, well, so we see this. And uh, I like how uh, Christopher Wright, probably the most, maybe the most respected Old Testament scholar of, uh, one, of the, one of the most, if not the most respected Old Testament scholars in the world today, and he puts it this way, he says, and We must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. So catch that again. Like it's not to accuse them of falsehood. It's not to say the basketball players in the locker room are lying. It's to recognize the nature of the rhetoric and the language. Similarly, Paul Capon, another scholar, puts it this way. He says, hey, A closer look at the biblical text reveals a lot more nuance and a lot less bloodshed. Joshua was just saying he had fairly well trounced the enemy. <clears throat> okay, so... We've seen, hey, these cities, this is taking place with these are military cities. Uh, We've seen that uh, they're using ancient trash talk as they're writing. But the third and final one, and this is perhaps the biggest one in my estimation, is that the primary language that's used in the Old Testament is driving out, not killing off. Driving out, not killing off. The language of driving out the Canaanites is used, like, over 60-something times, whereas the language of um, the, the drastic marching orders, like we said, just shows up in these very few places. The primary language that the Old Testament uses for Israel's encounter with Canaan is driving out, and this is the language of eviction, not murder. So if you think of, like, that rowdy dancer who gets bounced from the club, right? Bad news is you got bounced, buddy, but the good news is you're still alive, Right? got driven out so this is the primary language and uh so let's look at a few places where this language shows up to kind of see and get a feel for it so one here deuteronomy 11 says the lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you notice here how god is the primary agent doing the driving out and notice how this emphasis on how much larger and stronger the nations that, that this is happening with are than israel The power disparity, disparity, and God is the primary agent. Next one. uh, In Exodus 23, God says, Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So notice how this is depicted. Little by little, it's going to happen. This is a uh, gradual process, not an overnight ejection. right? And if we read this literally and we read Joshua 12 literally, again, like they don't match up. Joshua 12 says, hey, we did it in a moment. This is, going, this is going to be a gradual process. And once again, God is the primary agent. Go to Joshua 23. They're looking back and it says, hey, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. Once again, they're looking back and saying, this was primarily God doing the action And again, this emphasis on how great and powerful they were compared to Israel. And so, uh, when Israel does step in, there's this picture here where she's just almost like finishing off a fight that God's already brought 99% to the point of completion. When we hear this language of driving out, the context is that uh, Joshua and the others, it's inspiring courage for the fearful, not bloodlust for the greedy The context is going, man, we're going to get our tails kicked unless God is in this working for us. And man, God is going to be the one who fights for you, with you. Well, one other thing with kind of this this driving out language is I think um, this driving out language shows up elsewhere in Scripture too. If you think back to early on in the biblical story, can you think of any other places where there are people who are kind of driven out of the land? It's really like Adam and Eve, right? Like at the beginning of the biblical story, there's this picture where Adam and Eve, it's the same kind of language and phrases. They're driven out from the garden, driven out from Eden. I think there's kind of similar logic going on here. Adam and Eve, they kind of unleash the destructive power of sin into God's good garden, and because of that, they're driven out. And similarly now, Canaan, they've been growing for centuries, and they have unleashed the destructive power of sin and their rebellion at kind of these monumental building levels. And eventually, God's patience runs out, and like Adam and Eve before, he drives them out from his garden, out from the promised land. And we read later in Israel's story, the same language would be used for Israel with her exile. That Israel would grow and would experience her kingdom phase, her kingdom years. And in that time, she would become as idolatrous and unjust as the nations before her. We read in the prophets, she actually became worse, became more. And so again, God was patient and long-suffering. But after these generations and centuries, God eventually drives his own people out from the land should be the primary imagery we have. It's the language of exile, of eviction. So once again, if we kind of zoom out here and go, what is going on here? And I, I would offer, you know, one final reflection here. Uh, I am struck by more the patience of God in this story. What I mean by that is, uh, if you go back to Genesis 15, there's this interesting passage where God comes to Abraham, and he makes his, this covenant with him, and, and God in Genesis 15 talks about, hey, Abraham, know for certain that your descendants, your grandchildren, are going to go into slavery in this other land, in Egypt, right? For 400 years, and they're going to be cruelly mistreated there. But after that time, I'm going to bring them back out, I'm going to bring them here, And if I'm Abraham, I'm going, why? Like, man, that's my kids. God, I've given everything for you. Why won't you protect my children? And God goes, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full extent. The sin of the Amorites here in the land of Canaan has not yet reached its full extent. And a few thoughts on that. First off, um, if I'm Abraham, I'm ticked, right? Like, I'm like, man, God, I've given everything for you. And man, do anything you want to me. Let anything happen to me, but don't let it happen to my kids. Like protect my kids, right? God's patience with Canaan entails the suffering of his children. Like God's not just sitting around watching the daisies grow. He is in this, in this process that's, that's hard for his people, for his children, while he's being patient with the empires and powers of Canaan and Egypt. Second observation is... The Amorites are probably way, way more violent than we want to believe or, or might know. So the Amorites, that doesn't really ring a bell for us, but in the ancient world, the Amorites were famous for being the founders of Babylon. Babylon kind of the archetypal mighty empire that loved to dominate and devour the nations and was known as kind of this oppressive powerhouse. And there's a sense here that uh, the Amorites have now invaded the promised land and are there setting up shop and growing in Abraham's day. And Abraham knew who the Amorites were because he came from their homeland. God calls him out of Babylon, out of Ur, and calls him towards the promised land. But there's a sense that Babylon's not far behind and she's setting up shop. So ultimately, God is going to come, and he's going to tear down Babylon, and he's going to establish his kingdom in the land. Also, God is way more patient. Canaan is way more violent than we might think, and God is way more patient than we might believe. 400 years is a long, stinking time, right? Like our own nation is barely over 200 years old. That's hardly half of this length of time. There's this picture here of God being extremely patient. I used to live in Boston. I'd go running and I'd run through these graveyards and I'd see these tombstones from the late 1800s and I would just think, man, that was ages ago. That just seems like unfathomable how long ago that is. But that was only a small fraction. There's was a little over 100 years compared to 400 years of God's patience with the powerhouses of the ancient world. So I suggest to you here we have this picture uh, of God's patience with the empires growing in our world and God uh, uh, taking in the full weight of people being crushed and oppressed and the injustice that fills our world. And God is patient, but he will not be patient forever. That ultimately he will come to tear down the injustice of our world and establish his good and righteous kingdom. And if you're Abraham's people, if you are his grandchildren, if you're Israel, your question is not, God, why would you ever come and intervene with the empires of our world? Your question is, God, why do you wait so long? And this is a major theme in the Old Testament. The people cry out, how long, O Lord? How long until you come to set things right, to right the injustice, to establish your kingdom? And I would suggest that uh, this can actually be a great source of hope today because we live today as well in a time and a place where around the world we have international systems and structures and, uh, and you know one of the blessings I, I get to work with our international partnerships that being in places of post-conflict with genocide and trafficking and just some of the horrors of, of war and refugees and the trauma inflicted upon our world And often, those aren't just like isolated incidents. They're part and parcel of kind of the globalizing economic structure in our world today. And the primary, if we even think about, you know, who is uh, America and the West in the story, you know, we, we can't really use this narrative to justify our own stuff. Because if we look in the narrative, we're more in the position of the powerhouses, right? And if we think about the global church, most of the church lives in the southern hemisphere. Most of the church is poor. Impoverished compared to what we might think, and often our brothers and sisters in Christ sit under some of the forces and structures um, that have wreaked a lot of destruction in the world as well. So I suggest to you that uh, you know the international side is it's complicated and all that, but there is this picture I believe where God is being patient with our world today and our idolatry and our injustice and our rebellion and our attempts to rule the earth without God and the injustice that that unleashes. But God's patience will not last forever. And that is a great source of hope, I believe, for many in the world today. Thanks.
1: Um, Go ahead and uh, take a minute to ask, uh, to discuss around the, the table. Um, Let's see, here's a a question I wanna ask you. If you had um, 1,000 of any object to serve the most vulnerable, what object would it be, and how would you use it to serve them? So go ahead and have that discussion, and we'll come up in just a second. Okay, let's go ahead and bring it in. Um, as we, as we bring it in, I just want to, I want to I take a moment to pray. <clears throat> Father, it, uh, um, as we were, as we were listening, I, I, just sensed the weight of your, um, your character and your goodness and the reality that, that your, your judgment is, uh, so merciful to this broken world, that you uh, will not allow for these very evil and very wicked things that uh, oppress and harm the most vulnerable and tarnish your good world to stand forever. And that there's a day that's coming when uh, the swords will be beaten into plowshares and every tear will be wiped away from the eyes of those who weep and all things will be made new. And we thank you for that. And we just pray that you would give us a sense of how to respond as a congregation in the midst of this violent world. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm calling a, a little bit of an audible tonight because of uh, what I was appreciating about what Josh has been saying. And um, I, I just feel the sense t- of, of needing to um, to to take some time and to wrestle with some things as a congregation, and in particular, uh, propose some questions to you. So one thing, just to let you know, the questions that you send in, we're going to get to them. If you don't know, we have a podcast. Who's listened to the podcast, by the way? All right. So we've got a podcast now, so we're able to field a lot of the questions uh, in the podcast. We're also... I'm going to hopefully get to some of those tonight, and if you have questions, let's go ahead and send, uh, go ahead and put it up there. You can text those questions to all of life, to 411-247, and then send in your question, and then follow those instructions. So, got it? Those instructions, that's what you want to do. But the thing that I wanted to address tonight is that we are here talking about violence, and we're talking about if God... Is violent, and just to situate us in the context that we are in, we are in uh, Tempe, Arizona, the home of one of like the the, the most prominent uh, athe- new atheism hubs, where there are a lot of accusations that are thrown around to the God of the Bible that he is violent and that he is unjust and that uh, he's he uh, is a divine child abuser and all of these things and and there's a reality that when you go to the bible and you see some of the heavy things that are going on there's a reality that 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 god's judgment can be severe and there are things that should and will make us feel uncomfortable when we read the bible and there's a reality that at, at certain points that we just say, I don't understand what's going on there, but I know this God who has made himself known and entered into the violence of humanity through the cross and who is resurrected. But, but the, the, one of the main things that I wanted to draw out tonight is that our question about, uh, about God's violence, a lot of them that happen here in Tempe tends to put God on trial, to say, God, do you hold up to my standards? But I think that we need to flip the question a little bit. And instead of asking the question, which I think is an important question of how do we understand the violence in the Bible, we need to flip it and say, in light of the God of the Bible, how do we understand the violence that we see around us? to put ourselves on trial a bit. Let me just read, actually before I read some statistics, I want to tell you a little lighthearted, fun story. Fallujah, who knows where Fallujah is? It's in Iraq. What's Fallujah famous for? Being really dangerous, right? My family, we received, uh, we've had seven international students stay with us over the years. And one of the guys who came to visit us was from Fallujah. And I went to pick him up, and he was sitting in the, the car with me, and you could tell his head was on a swivel. He was looking everywhere. And, and we got to my house, and he relaxed a little bit. I could tell he was just so tense. And then we were going to go uh, take a walk in the evening, and, and he, he basically wouldn't want to go on a walk. And I kept pressing him. I said, hey, it's really nice outside. Arizona is great. Like, like let's, let's go. Let's go Tempe Town Lake. And he basically said, I will not go outside because I've heard how violent America is. Like, I am terrified of being in America. And I'm looking at him saying, man, you are from Fallujah, and you won't walk around Tempe, Arizona. And part of it had to do with the fact that his whole perception of America was through movies, so he just thought we were doing high-speed chases all the time. <laughs> um, but connecting to Chelsea's question earlier, I've generally kind of thought of America as not that violent of a place. And it's not that violent of a place, and it's, it's, it's pretty pretty cool and pretty easy. Um, but whenever I hear my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world critique the American church. One of the main things that they critique about America and about the American church is how violent we are. And some of the things that they bring up, let me, let me just list these out and propose these as potential symptoms that we have some idols that we are centering our lives on and using violence to protect these idols and that we've glorified violence in some way. Consider this. What movies are the most popular movies in American society. You better believe there's some guns and some bombs in those movies. We have video games that are, that are functionally spiritual disciplines that are reprogramming neural pathways in kids as they daily participate in the, the dramatization of shooting someone in the head as entertainment. What are our favorite sports? I'm a football guy. I love football. But consider this. In America, we love our violent sports more than any other sport. You don't see a whole lot of attention going to badminton, right? Like the badminton championship, nobody cares about that. But for the UFC, we enjoy watching people kick each other in the head and give each other concussions, Consider the incarceration rate that we have in this country. It speaks to a couple of different things. It cons- it speaks to the, the the fact that 22% of all the prisoners in the world are incarcerated in the United States, which I believe is more than any other uh, like developed uh, nation, any And and, there's different sides to that. One is that people are going to prison for violent crimes. But the other is that we are using the coercion of government to, for various reasons, the coercive violent power to put people in prison. Consider for a moment that we have more guns in this country than anywhere in the world. Consider for a moment that our military spending is astronomically more than anywhere else. Consider for a moment the things that we enjoy in our, our various entertainment and, and those sorts of things. Consider what's happening with the various violence that's happening uh, with, with people being killed by police officers and then people going out and shooting police officers, public servants, in daylight. These are symptoms of something. Now, many of these things are are good things, uh, like, for instance, football. I'm going to argue that football is good. I actually like to hunt. You know, there are several of these things that are good, but when taken together with all of these things, it might be an indication that it's not God who should be on trial of, hey, how violent is he? but it's us who should be on trial and say, what sort of violence and what is the reason behind it? These are questions we have to wrestle with, and I, I'm not going to fully break down every the whys and the hows, but I want to leave with those questions. And then I also want to propose to you something that's very important in this discussion. It's, the, it's that... It's that um, The, the violence that we see in the country necessitates that we ask the question, how ought God's people to be unique and distinct? How ought we to be different in this broken, violent society? What does it look like for us to be peacemakers? And yes, I said the word peacemakers. In a world like ours, that seems like a silly word, does it not? But if you really paid attention to Scripture, we would find that there is a missing piece in our theology. And I say that uh, with a little wordplay, missing piece. Consider the witness of the Bible that the, the story of the Bible is God creating a world with perfect peace and then restoring it to perfect peace in the end, what the Bible calls Shalom. Consider the fact that God's very name is, is, he calls himself, the name on his business card is the God of peace. Consider in Colossians 1, how it describes his mission as reconciling all things. Consider the proclamation of blessing that he declares over peacemakers in in the Beatitudes, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Consider... The fact that the very gospel that we love is a gospel that's all about reconciling enemies of God back to God and it is named in scripture the gospel of peace. Consider the fact that in the epistles over and over again there is a call, a command to be peacemakers. And with that consideration and all that in scripture, Isn't it interesting that when we think about the word of being peacemakers, when we think about what it's like to be a peacemaker, when we throw that word around, it seems silly to us in American society. When was the last time you had a discussion with a friend about how you are engaging in peacemaking, that you are a conduit of God's shalom in a violent and broken world? I mean, Has anyone had that conversation recently? If you have, I'm going to give you like a candy bar or something. Okay, my favorite people right there, two of them. Two people out of like the 300 million in America having that conversation. Well, let me propose to you what this might look like a bit. If we were to take this seriously and be a countercultural people in the midst of this world, what would it look like? Just imagine with me. Perhaps, perhaps our vacations would be pilgrimages of lament, where we visit places like Yemen and Chicago, and we, we go and experience and be near to the places where the violence is boiling up and where the most vulnerable are, and we went and prayed and lamented. We actually have a trip as a church that we're going to take to Chicago in the spring to do just that. What would it look like to show radical hospitality? You see, the reality is with the international students at ASU, anybody can find a homestay to stay with an American family except for Muslim men. People specifically request not to have them. But what if the church was the place of radical hospitality where all of Saudi Arabian students found their home in Christian churches and in, in the homes of people Christian churches? What if... You got on the sex offender registry, and instead of saying, who should I be suspicious of and watch out for, what if that was the place where you wrote birthday cards to those people because it gives their address and uh, expressed some level of love to, to, to subvert some of the, the violence and brokenness that they experience? What if we, people started pursuing careers in law enforcement with the peacemaker mindset? And instead of having the mentality that a lot of people are having now that say, I'm not getting into law enforcement, that's too controversial, saying, I want to be a police officer because I want to be a part of of the, the mending and the reconciling and bear witness to this peacemaking God. What if we prayed through the news rather than watched it as entertainment? What if we honored the voice of the most vulnerable that can be prophetic to us in the midst of our very violent world. A guy named Jean Varnier, he moved into a home with people with special needs uh, to live with them and to learn from them. He said this quote right here. He says, a society which discards those who are weak and nonproductive risks exaggerating the development of reason, organization, aggression, and the desire to dominate. Uh, it becomes a society, society without a heart, without kindness, a rational and sad society, lacking celebration, divided within itself and given to competition, rivalry, and finally, violence. What if we elevated the voice of the most vulnerable to learn from them on how to live in a world like this? Well, there's there's something we're going to call you to as a church. In January, we're starting something. We're calling it peacemaker teams. And we're, we're basically putting teams of people together who are actively going to be present in the places of most violence in our city. They're going to, not as protesters, but as a prayerful presence to de-escalate the violence that's in that place, to pray for God's shalom, to offer a listening ear and water to those who are weeping or yelling. And it's going to be risky, And there's going to be violence that breaks out. But the very nature of the gospel and our suffering God who absorbs sin into himself and suffers on our behalf is is a self-giving love that puts ourselves in harm's way for the sake of the other. If you want to be a part of one of those teams, uh, we're going to start it in January. Fill out one of those cards on, on your table and we'll connect with you as it gets closer to that but then the 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 i think the last word goes to a friend of mine his name is Hakan and he was a guy that i met when i was in turkey and a muslim guy and he agreed to read the bible with me how cool is that we read through the bible and we when we started in luke i don't know why i just like luke so we said hey, let's start in luke And I wanted him to get to know Jesus. And we got to Luke 6, and we read these words together as we sat down in a Turkish cafe. He said, this is Jesus, not Hakan who said this. It's about 10 verses, and just sit under the weight of these. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. See, if you love your But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful, your Heavenly Father is merciful. And we read that passage together in that Turkish cafe, and Hakan looked up at me with big eyes And he said, did you just see that? Did you hear what Jesus just said? This is amazing. This would change the world. You see, even if you guys, Americans, thought that we Muslims were your enemy, doesn't this say that you should just give us a bunch of money? Doesn't it say that you, if you thought that that we were enemies, that you would have to do all kinds of creative good things for us and love us? He said, Jim, you have got to go back to America and tell the Christians about what Jesus said in the Bible. So I'm here, commissioned by Hakan. A Muslim man to tell Christians to take Jesus seriously in his command to love our enemies as ourselves. The passages in the Bible that should trouble us are not necessarily some marching orders in the book of Judges, which that's good if you ask that question. But there is no way we can read stuff like this and not be troubled and not tremble and say what in the world does it look like to follow this God who suffers for his enemies by suffering for our enemies this should make us tremble and so what we're going to do tonight we're going to get to all the questions we're going to answer them over the podcast but I just think that this is important to leave the questions with you the question is as we close, and, and here's, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're closing right now. We're not going to have an official end time. I'm just going to leave this question with you. You discuss it as long as you need. Once I put this mic down and pray for us, we're done, but you take this discussion. We do something called Redemption Grants around here, and uh, basically where we give grants to people in our community, in our church, Uh, to be able to do good, to bless those who, uh, to bless people in the community. So it's your ideas that you generate. And we have uh, another round coming up soon. We actually stole this idea from Josh Butler in Portland. But we have that coming up. And so what I want to ask you to discuss around your tables is if you had $1,000 to love ISIS to creatively figure out how to subversively love something, someone like ISIS or some other enemy, your political other, or what, what, or the, the new atheist group or something like that that's hostile to you and you don't like them or something. But figure out whoever you decide or whoever you, society frames as your enemy and think, what would you do with $1,000 to try to tangibly love them? And get creative and think out of the box and, and do those sorts of things. So that's the question we're leaving with you tonight uh, instead of asking questions up here. We'll get to the questions on the podcast, but that's what we're, where we're ending tonight is to wrestle with the question of what would it look like for us to tangibly love our enemies in this world today. So don't limit it to the ISIS and those sorts of things. But however the Spirit is prompting you to answer that question, that's the question I want to ask. What does it look like for us to love our enemies and obey Jesus and listen to Hakan in this world today? Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we discuss now and help us feel the weight of your words upon us. That the the that your that your gospel of peace and the fact that you're the God of peace and the fact that you call us to be peacemakers is not some light thing that only belongs to, to hippies, but this is like, this is, this is a reflection of your character. And we live in a violent world where violence is taken in so, so lightly and, and delighted in. Teach us, Father, what it looks like to delight in the gospel of peace to love our neighbors well and to love them sacrificially. God, I pray that you would give wisdom to everyone in this room as they discuss this now. In Jesus' name, amen.